on uh, <clears throat> Wednesday, Wendy was telling me about her plan to go to Walmart in Barhaven to buy a turkey. Uh, now, we don't usually grocery shop in Barhaven, uh, but we needed a 20-pound turkey, and as everyone who's anyone knows, you can't just get a 20-pound turkey anywhere. Actually, I'm not one of those anyone. I didn't know that, but apparently... <laughs> and so the great and festive turkey hunt started. The rush of the hunt and the thrill of the chase, that final 15-yard dash to the last bird on the shelf. And, uh, you know, Thanksgiving really is all about food, isn't it? The, the mounds and mounds and mounds of uh, food which we um, experience, which leads us to one of the food-related occupational hazards of Thanksgiving, which is snacking. Because for Thanksgiving... Uh, the goal is to try to empty your stomach. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone as we were walking into church that uh, he's not eating lunch because he's preparing for later. <laughs> so it's real. It's real. And so you, you try to have a small breakfast and you try to skip lunch uh, because you want to be hungry. And not just regular hungry, but, but Thanksgiving I could eat a whole turkey hungry. That's the goal. But the thing with being super hungry is that you face this massive temptation to snack. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I will snack on virtually anything that's around. A little bit here and a little bit there. A rice cracker, maybe, or a little corner of cheese. Um, a spoon of lovely crunchy peanut butter. That works as well. Maybe even a couple of bits of popcorn left on the area rug from last night. Those also look really good. And each morsel by itself, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. Uh, but if you keep snacking all day, then you're headed towards the inevitable. And that is sitting at the Thanksgiving table saying, actually, I'm not that hungry. And there's nothing sadder than sitting down with all of that awesomeness in front of you, literally on a platter, and you're not up for it. And so you nibble a little bit here and a little bit there. You eat something because it's rude not to, but your heart's not in it because you've ruined your appetite. And that's like us, right? Not physically, maybe physically, but we're not here to talk about food but it is like us spiritually. We are souls and bodies, and our eternal soul is too big, too huge to be satisfied by snacks. Our souls are there with their mouths open like a baby bird saying, I'm hungry for real food, feed me. And we go our souls a little bit here and a little bit there, just enough to stave off the hunger pangs, but there's never satisfaction, it's never enough, and so we eat more snacks, and we snack, and we snack. But your soul needs a feast. Stop feeding it snacks. You know those movies that are so engaging and so enthralling that you don't 
remember that you're watching a movie, right? You're just there, and it's real, and that world is your world. No other world exists outside of it. And I love those movies when, when you can get lost in a world, in a universe. But there are also those moments in movies where something happens in the movie, and suddenly you remember that you're watching a movie. And I hate those moments. So I was watching the live-action Lion King with Ariana for her birthday. And there was this moment in watching the live-action Lion King when I got taken out of the movie when I said, oh, come on, that is so unrealistic. (laughs) And it had nothing to do with talking animals or singing animals or dancing animals. I was okay with that. I... I tracked with that because it made sense in the universe of the movie. But the moment that, that impacted me on a deep level was after Simba ran away from Pride Rock and he ends up in that kind of oasis-y, jungly area and he meets, you know, a meerkat called Timon and a warthog called Pumba. Again, I'm okay with that. I'm still in the movie. And then he's hanging out with them. I think they sing a song. Once again, not a problem. But then this moment happens. Simba, a real-looking lion, starts eating real-looking grubs. And I realized that I could handle a cartoon-looking lion eating cartoon-looking grubs, like in the 1994 movie or whenever it was. But as soon as you start making it more real, it becomes less realistic. Because lions don't eat grubs. Not now, not ever. And I think that if a real lion was told by a real warthog that, that to eat insects, then that real lion would simply eat the real warthog, and the story would be over the circle of life. And so when we spiritually snack our way through life and pretend to be satisfied, it's as absurd as watching a lion eat a maggot and licking his lips, saying, that was good. Because we were created for food, for real food. And when we never allow our souls to be full of God, when when we're staving off the hunger by eating a little morsel here and there, then we're like a lion eating grubs. Your soul is hollering, crying out for a feast. Stop feeding its snacks. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And if you do have a Bible within reach, please uh, read along because uh, it's good to get in, into the Bible. Now, while, while you're turning there, remember that our series is called Looks Like Love. This is part four of this series. Um, and last week we, looked, we learned that love not lived out is not love. And I shared from my heart, I don't know if you remember, but I shared from my heart about this sense of being under spiritual attack. And it was crazy. It was like really profound. And I felt that I had to share it because we all go through stuff like this. And we, sometimes we just have to stop pretending that everything is hunky-dory, that everything is okay. And so I do want to say thank you for everyone that called me, sent me an email, sent me a note, whatever, Um, because, uh, praise God, that the heaviness on my heart has lifted. 
And uh, I really see that as an answer to prayer. So let's give God the glory. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. As we read through this passage, I want you to engage with the passage and ask yourself, what does love look like? 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything that For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, God cares about how we live. God cares about how you live. He cares what you do and what you don't do. He cares about how we spend our time. He cares about what we invest in. But the reason that he cares is because he knows the opportunity in front of us. He knows what what is our potential. He knows why we were created. He knows what will bring us true and intimate satisfaction. That's why God cares. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And the reason that Paul says this is because all that the world has to offer us is snacks. Snacks that don't satisfy, snacks that can never satisfy, snacks that masquerade as three-course meals. And the snacks are truly dangerous because they can stave off these hunger pangs that, um, that, that you never feel hungry enough to truly want God. That you never get excited about what God is actually offering because you're eating just enough of these snacks not to get hungry. You don't know what you're missing. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and on, John tells us that we were made for more. We were, we were constructed and we were created by a loving God in his image to be satisfied by him. And when we choose to find satisfaction elsewhere, wherever it is, we're like car engines trying to run on water. We were engineered to run on God. Only he can satisfy. But in this world, we can be fooled into thinking that this morsel that we're eating, this little piece of popcorn on the area rug left from last night, we can be fooled into thinking that this is all that there is, so I may as well make the most of it. Now, when John talks about the world in, in, in verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2, um, when he says, do not love the world, he's not talking about humanity. He's not talking about the earth that we see. He's not talking about, you know, the, the physical earth. God's not telling us not to love these things. He's not telling us never to enjoy anything in this world. He's not telling us that we all have to become monks or nuns and reject all of the experiences of life, though that's what man-made religion says we should do. Instead, when God says, do not love the world, he means don't be taken in by the invisible systems and the sinful worldviews that try to convince you that you don't need God. Don't listen when they tell you their lies. And so to put it in another way, the world in First John means living your life without reference to 
your, your God. It is a life without God. It's a kingdom without a king. And as 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us, which we'll hear, hear about in a few weeks' time, that as, as 1 John 5, 19 tells us, the whole world is under control, under the control of the evil one. And so because this system is set up in rebellion to God and his rule, the moment that you fall in love with this world, the love of the Father is not in you. As soon as you fall in love with this world that has no God, the love of God is not in you. It's a clear sign. That makes sense. And in this world that's set up in rebellion, this, this system which we cannot see but exists very, very really, Satan tries to trap every human being with three main false lusts, three main false yearnings. Satan's got three ways of attack, and if, he, and, and if he's able to get you on these, then his job is already done. Now, now, Satan can never match what God has to offer, but what he can do is he can keep people really distracted so that they never get round to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. He says, try this. Over here, you know, look at this. You should try this. Would you like another? And if we keep on eating these things, then we never get to that feast that God has for us. If he, if Satan can convince us as lions that the only thing on the menu is grubs, then Satan's won. So what are these dangerous snacks? Verse 16 tells us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are the three things that we have to reject if we are to seek full satisfaction in a God who with every fiber of, his, of who he is, and he's eternal, but every ounce of him, every fiber of him wants the best for you. He wants you satisfied. He wants you absolutely content. He wants you to know what it is to sit there feeling spiritually full, having to undo a notch on your belt because you're so stuffed with him. That's what he wants. James 1 verse 4 says this, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And not lacking anything is another way of saying being spiritually full. Psalm 23 says that when God is meeting our needs as our shepherd, we will not want for anything else. We will be satisfied. So fatal snack number one for us to reject and avoid is the lust of the flesh. And this means living for the here and now. This means living for the material. Some of these material things are out and out sinful. And there are other things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're temporary things that we treat like eternal things. Mr. Tim Keller, he's a pastor down in New York, and he said that idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. This means treating a rice cracker like it's a Thanksgiving meal. 
And we can do this with all sorts of things. Our career, our calendar, our reputation, our car, our credit, our school, you know, our family, turning good things into ultimate things. Now, we read in Galatians 5 verse 16 that the flesh desires what is, what is, what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit desires what is, what is contrary to the flesh. These are two systems that are set up in direct opposition to each other. And so the lust of the flesh is living as if God does not exist. And then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul gives us a helpful list of what a life looks like that is ruled by the lust of the flesh. And I read this from the message paraphrase. So here's, here's this list. This is the list of what a life looks like that is ruled by the lust of the flesh. And you can think and ask, is there anything in this list that, that's, that, 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 that's true of me? Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper. An impotence to be loved or to love. Homes, with, homes and lives which, which are divided. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. A vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. And lastly, ugly parodies of community. These are all markers of what a life looks like that's ruled by the lust of the flesh. And it's not a nice-looking life, right? Because this is a life that's subsisting on snack food throughout its whole life. We were made for never-endingness. And only something which is, which, is the, which is the size of eternity can satisfy us. Now, the second fatal snack which we are to avoid is the lust of the eyes. And often it's the lust of the eyes that leads into the lust of the flesh. And Job understood this, which is why he says in chapter 31 of verse 1 of Job, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. So why make a promise with his eyes? Because he knew that these wants and yearnings that come through unchecked looking leads into the desires of the flesh. Ask anyone who's working through an addiction. It starts with a glance, a look, a moment, followed by a second glance, a second look, a second moment. And so I wonder, if, 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 you, if, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, when is the last time that you made a covenant to choose holiness over sin? You see, God, when or you see, when God sees us taking holiness seriously, when God sees us resisting the urge to snack on sinful and unhealthy snacks, he comes alongside us and he empowers us. Second Chronicles 69 says exactly this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed unto him. 
For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So when you choose not to snack on, on sinful or temporary things, but to keep your appetite for the good and the ultimate things of God, God moves. He is mobilized. He starts working, working for you to support you and to give you the power that, that you need. And what this means is that you never walk the walk of holiness on your own. You are never alone. You always do it with God inside you and the resources of, of, of God at your right hand. So the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And the third fatal snack for, for, for us to avoid at all costs is the pride of life. Now we... We all experience this, the need to outshine our neighbors through success or to outlive our friends through our experiences. That we don't only want to keep up with the Joneses, but we want to be more successful than, than them. We want them to be thinking of us as the Joneses and for them to want to keep up with us. We want to, to try to convince others that ours is the good life. And so we live for summer, and we live for sex, and we live for the weekend, and we live for the cottage or the trailer. We live for retirement. We turn good things into ultimate things. We live for maybe having a girlfriend, maybe getting married, having kids, having the kids move out of diapers, having the kids move out of the house. All of these things can turn into the pride of life. And so we see the pride of life in virtue signaling, making ourselves look really good, wanting to be seen in the right crowds at the right place at the right time with the right people doing the right thing. And what the pride of life considers is that other people's uh, thoughts of you is more important than your internal character. That what other people think of you is more important than what God thinks of you. And so this pride of life is never satisfied. It's always looking for the next thing. And this, it's this pride of life that refuses for God to satisfy you. And so the lust of the eyes lead to the lust of the flesh, which can lead into the pride of life. And it's a, it's a world, once you're living in that world, it's a world in which there is no room for the Lord. So, where is God in your life? Is he central or is he squeezed in the side? Now, we might think this. Okay, Dan, I can imagine others getting fooled by these snacks, not me. I'm holding out for the turkey. I know that God's all I really need. And yes, I may slip up from time to time, but me and God are actually good. That's what we might think. Now, I remember a time I was in the country of, of uh, Tanzania, and I was with these ladies, and we were going over to the police station because we had to report uh, some crime. You see, what had happened is that, is that, some, is that this gang had uh, found them, had, uh, had forced them into a car, and then forced them to 
drive around in this fake taxi for a few hours from ATM to ATM as they withdrew all of their money in their bank accounts. Now, the crazy thing is that one of these women, you know, had actually been to Dar es Salaam before, and she was the one saying to people, only get in the taxis that are legit. And she even told us how to know which ones were the fake ones and which ones were the real ones. And so I know that she was thinking, this could never happen to me. After all, she had the right head knowledge. And we're just the same, you and me. We all have these moments when we say, I thought it would never happen to me until it happened. We all think that, that being, being, being taken in by the world you know, happens to our friends you know, and our neighbors and those, and those people in our minds we're thinking about now that we generally feel sorry for. Those are the people who are taken in by the world, not us, just like those women thought that being robbed happens to other people. But verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2 says that we can all... We can all be taken in by the love of the world. We can all live as if God is, is not real. This is something which, which can happen to, to whoever, regardless of our maturity level. That's what verses 12 through 14 is about. Whether we, we consider ourselves little children in the faith, or young men and women in the faith, or spiritual fathers or mothers in the faith, we are all susceptible to the lies of the enemy. We are all right there in the midst of a battle, and it's a battle of misinformation. And so don't be one of those people who says, this could never happen to me. Instead, be someone who assumes that it is happening to you, that you are under attack, that you are being tempted, that Satan has you in his sights, and that the world is trying to lure you into loving it rather than the Lord. You should assume that Satan's, uh, Satan's misinformation machine can even take in you, whether you are a child in the faith, or a young man in the faith, or a father in the faith. But once you do realize that this battle is real. John's, John's advice in verses 12 through 14 is amazing. Because what John tells us to fight against Satan's lies is to remember what God has already done. Read it. It's there. You know, for you to live a life where you are winning, where, where you are victorious... Remember what has already happened in the past. Verse 12 says, Your sins have been what? Forgiven. Which is the present perfect tense because of his name. Verse 13 and 14, because you know, present tense, who, him who is from the beginning. Verse 13, because you have, present tense, because you have overcome the, the evil one. Verse 14, because you know, present tense, the Father. And then verse 15, which is amazing, says this, I write, I, I write to you, young men. Now, these are people who are not little babies in the faith, but, ni but neither are they old men in the faith, right? These are the people um, who, 
for whom the warfare is real at that moment in time. These are the people um, who are daily wrestling with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. These are the people who attempted to eat snacks. These are the people who struggle and fall and fail and then they get back up again and they fight. And, and what does John say to them? These folks, these young men, these young women who could so easily throw in the towel and say, that's it. He says this in verse 15. He says, you are strong in, in the present tense. He says that the word of God lives in you in the present tense. He says, you have overcome the evil one in the present tense. You know, this is incredible because what, because what John's actually doing here is he's writing to people on the front lines of warfare, on the front lines of their faith who are fighting. And he's saying, in Jesus, you are strong. Jesus lives in you. In Jesus, you are a victor. Because, because the victory has already been won on the cross. Friends, for you to be a, a, a child and then a son and then a father, you have to be born first. And there are some of you who aren't children because you've never been born again, because you've never come into God's family. And so the, uh, and so the only way that you can even be aware of this world of lies that Satan has made is, is for you to see with eyes which are spiritual. And this can only happen when you are born again, if you are birthed into God's family. Then you can be a child and then a son and then a father, a child and then a daughter and then a mother. And so if you don't know that that God's your father, then speak to me after the service and I will lead you happily in uh, moving into a relationship of faith with him. And yet, friends, for those of you who are actually born again, then know this for sure, it's a promise. You are in a battle. You're in a, you're in a conflict right now with the value system of this world, which is under control of invisible malevolent forces who wish you ill. Maybe you are weary, you are tired, you are battle-scarred. Maybe you are toying with the idea of living a life that removes the Lord from, from, from the equation because having a life where you're not responsible to this supreme being sounds amazing right now. Maybe that's what you want. So if you're hearing these siren calls of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, then know this and take heart. Jesus has already won the victory. Children, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You know the Father. Young men, young women, you are strong. The word of God lives in you. In Jesus, you have overcome the evil one, and spiritual fathers and mothers rest in the knowledge that you know him who is from the beginning. I thank God for the present tense. And so as the worship team comes up, as we think about our Thanksgiving weekend, I'd love to say to you this, don't snack. Don't treat your birthright, your inheritance with Jesus, 
lightly. Hold out for the good stuff. Let God satisfy you with himself. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let him overflow every nook of your hungry soul. Tell him how hungry you are and that you won't be satisfied by anything except him. So children, young men and women of the faith, fathers and mothers of the faith, verse 17 tells us that the world and its desires will, will pass away. Okay, that's, that's a promise. The world and its desires pass away. And so your job, your, you know, those, those that you love, your social standing, your, your Instagram account, your house and your cottage will one day not exist anymore. One day in Jesus, we will be free from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But the only thing in your life that will exist one million years from now, 1,000 million years from now, the only thing that will exist is you. You will outlast all of this stuff. And you can choose to live forever fully satisfied in Father God. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called heaven. Or you can live forever outside of his presence, craving snacks that can never satisfy. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called hell. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life extending into, in, into never-endingness with no restraining influence, with nothing to stop it or to check it or to hinder it or to curb it. That is hell. Life without God. This is hell. Verse 17. But whoever does the will of God lives forever remains forever, lives with, lives with God forever. You were created for, for, for never-endingness, and only what is never-ending can satisfy you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Your soul is longing for a feast. It needs that feast. Stop feeding its snacks.